And welcome, you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all across the country uh, into other countries and potentially other planets. Uh, and as well, our particular thank you to our podcast listeners, because you're like regular listeners, only we can track you and that makes us feel good. <laughs> um, I am your host today, Saren Kaster. I'm going to be more your tech today, Saren Kaster, because uh, I'm in the tech seat and uh, will be relegated largely to pressing buttons and making sarcastic comments. Here come your actions actual hosts with Stefan and Dave. Thanks so much, Sharon. Uh, so we've got quite the show for you today. It is uh, sort of the, a similar, uh, you know, last week was all interviews. This week is all news. We've got 11 different news stories we're going to run through. Uh, we have an update. Uh, we're starting off the show with an update on Una Stoughton, um, and then some very quick hits, some positive news stories uh, in, regards to, in regards to the EU and plastics, uh, some information about farmers, polar bears, an entire middle section about coal, uh, and then we'll finish the show with some, uh, with some activism news as well as information about uh, about a, a tidal lagoon, uh, which is a story we picked up a couple weeks ago that we wanted to get to, uh, and then some things about schools and the military. But to start us off, sort of an ongoing uh, story uh, here in Canada with the Unisodan camp, um, and we're sort of checking back in on this one. Uh, Dave, what's the newest update? Coastal Gaslink. <coughs> Coastal Gaslink, a subsidiary of TransCanada, has suspended work on part of their liquid natural gas pipeline running through northern BC after artifacts were discovered on site, possibly dating back thousands of years. The company insists that it did a proper archaeological assessment uh, of the region but was unable to enter that particular area for lack of road access. The stone tools were discovered only after bulldozers upturned the forested land to make way for a worker's camp. The Unistoten clan of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation claim the find proves that the area has historical, cultural, and spiritual importance. They argue that the company has relied on unclear definitions of archaeological assessment requirements in order to get away with conducting an armchair review without physically assessing the land at all. So they have been combing the area themselves for material evidence supporting their oral history in lieu of an on-site archaeological assessment. More and more supporters seem to be arriving at the protest camp and healing center set up by the Unistoten in 2010 to help prevent the pipeline from being built through unceded land, land which might legally fall under the jurisdiction of traditional hereditary leadership rather than the elected councils who have signed agreements in support of the project. A month ago, the company also temporarily stopped work when indigenous hunters began entering the area to access traps that had been set up there. Justin Trudeau was recently almost shouted down at his own community event by an indigenous woman asking when Canada would begin seeing them as human beings. Trudeau responded that Canada has failed to live up to the spirit and intent of the original treaties and behaved in paternalist and colonialist ways that has, quote, lacked respect. He also stated, I understand your frustration. Unistoten website states, quote, Under Section 13.2 of the Heritage Conservation Act, administered by the Ministry of Forests, Lands, and Natural Resource Operations, Coastal GasLink must not damage, excavate, dig in, or alter, or remove any heritage object from a site that contains artifacts, features, materials, or other physical evidence of human habitation or use before 1846 or from a site that contains artifacts, features, materials, or other physical evidence of unknown origin. They also state, quote, The Heritage Conservation Act is binding on the government and overrides any other conflicting act. It protects heritage sites predating 1846 AD and requires Coastal GasLink uh, as BC, OGC, and EAO permit holder to cease all work immediately. TransCanada, meanwhile, has uh, just uh, made record profits for its shareholders for the 19th consecutive year. Yeah, so two quick notes here. Um, the first is that uh, I think it's I think it's specifically um, it's quite a quite a Western uh, I think or or, or um, I, I, ideal is the wrong word, but quite a Western mindset, I think, uh, to have this level of protection uh, for for historical sites uh, that is that that is so much beyond what we are protecting for the people currently living there. Mm. You know, it, it's a it's a very specific way of mindset to presume that something is that people lived there. 200 years ago is somehow more important and and able to say stop this type of type of action um it, it, 
while entirely ignoring uh, the the fact that people are currently living there, and that to even discover this, they had to you know destroy those traps to get into the space. You know, this is this, this you're causing current harm to these individuals, um, and and yet because it's not you know. Be, be, but the, the, somehow history is sort of seen, quote unquote, history is is sort of seen as 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 the as important enough to to prevent this kind of action. Uh, it, it strikes me as v- a very specific mindset that seems to prevent to to exist. Well, them, I so. suppose um, certain people would argue that uh, it, it's a question of whether or not the pipeline is running through. You know how long how you know how long have these people how long have the people been dwelling in the pipeline path, right? So this lends credence to that historical, right? Right. That they've and and interestingly, this was something that they've been calling for for, for well before this discovery. You know, this was actually something that you know that that the Unison, uh camp had had quite clearly cl- had stated that this was a historical site. They had been living there for quite some time, and that they actually had asked for this type of review prior to this discovery, uh, and only and then were you know vindicated in some ways by this discovery. Yeah. Well, the conservative question would be. Uh, what is the interval between historical um, dwelling on the land and contemporary dwelling on the land? Right. Right. Well, if you ignore the fact that um, you know that, that this is unceded territory, um, mm-hmm. you know, then then that's it's, you get into these interesting sort of these these problematic pieces, right? Of of we must pres- we must restore the or protect the history um, of 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 a peoples whom We're agency we entirely not, ignored. You know, mm-hmm. like we we straight up, you know, it's unceded land. This is their land, has been their land clearly since at least the 1800s, but obviously quite likely, you know, even thousands, tens of thousands of years before. Well, that. that's the problem, right? They didn't have like documents of land ownership before the Europeans came. Right, which which is a, which is a question I think needs to be explored more, quite more widely across Canada. Is is this question of uh, of there's all of these agreements that existed between um, you know indigenous groups uh, well beyond before before Euro- European settlement, and yet all of them are basically seen as void. And these just bec- these papers that the, that the Europeans brought, despite the fact that they were you know argue they're often signed in bad faith or or, or poor understanding or all these other dif- issues. Like if you look into like ongoing contention around the around the Toronto purchases and it is just one mm-hmm. example of this and yet these are the things that sort of take precedence over really the actual you know much more a longer serving uh, and and much more holistic uh, agreements that had been signed within indigenous treaties, you know, like the Wampum Covenant Belt again here in Toronto, yeah. um, which which were truly a part of this type of, of discourse. Well, one of the things that such uh, archaeological finds can help um, uncover is exactly how the land was indeed managed prior to European settlement. Right. Um, we'll, we'll, yeah, Sarah, just, Sorry, just really quickly. The, um, uh, the in my proud history of putting words in trust, Justin Trudeau's mouth, going back to his <laughs> comment to the woman who interrupted him, if you're a random person with no, so just your just your average citizen, um, it is extremely appropriate to express compassion, uh, especially for historical crimes like the one. So his expression would be amazing and great and really valuable if he was a regular citizen. When you're in a position of power, you have to finish that sentence, mm-hmm. and the end. There's only two ends of that sentence. One of them is, and here's what I'm going to do about it. And the other one is, what are you going to do about it? And we didn't hear any plan. So I'm going with, and what are you going to do about it? Now, that's not the tone he wanted to present, but that is the rest of that sentence. Well, in the conference, he he, he, he finished by spewing his regular sort of vague stuff about how we're working with people to do stuff and make the processes better. Right, right. Uh, sort of a, a classic just. But what's amazing is that he says, failed to live up to the spirit and intent of the original treaties and we've behaved in ways that have lacked respect and I understand your frustration. To me that's just insulting. Well it's insulting. Obviously for many he does reasons. not understand their frustration. And the rest of that was and now we're kinda of locked in. So I mean what do you what do you want me to do about it? Well not to I mention mean, damn it sucks to be you, but what are you gonna do? Not to mention the fact that the original treaties were signed quite often in quite uh you know yeah. were, were were themselves colonial in nature. That was the whole point of them. Occasionally and, at gunpoint? Yeah well and also some of these treaties were not signed at all. You know, in this particular case there is no treaty that was signed to see this land. For some reason, he has to believe in the benevolence of the treaties. Yeah, and I don't it, know why it, that it's is. like well, it's because at some point you start questioning the the value of this Canadian state. Uh, but let's let's uh, <laughs> let's move on to EU plastics. Uh, so yes, in a totally different uh, realm, uh, we have the European Union uh, last week or the week before officially ratified its plan to ban single-use plastics, uh, which will reduce ocean litter. Um, save their economy at least $30 billion, and reduce CO2 pollution by 3.4 million tons. See, it can be done. 
Um, you know, quick, quick little hit of a of a story that EU and the EU has been ahead of the game on recycling for quite some time. I think in part uh, because of their sort of their their larger system, and in part because of the, uh, the the density that exists there. You know, I think here in Canada, we it is so much easier. I think actually to allow ourselves to keep throwing stuff away because we have so much more land. And in, pla- in, in places that are much more dense, you actually get stronger and stronger regulations to try to reduce this type of thing because, you know, you have to live beside it. <laughs> you know, there's, a, there's an element of which you can't just otherize the waste, you know, mm. put it beside, uh, you know, p- get it out into, the, in, into places where, you know, either, either no one or, or, or disadvantaged peoples will be affected and the average person will not be. Yeah, once you, those English vacationers get down to Cyprus, they can't enjoy their water. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're not in. Um, and so it's not surprising that EU is, is, is moving on this. But at the very least, it should, um, in the same way that previous EU laws around technology and, 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 and moving towards a more circular economy have, have proven um, to be effective, uh, I think this, hopefully what we're seeing here is a number of plans that are getting put in place that when we see a larger uh, shift in, 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 in Canada and States and other places, they'll have examples of effective policy uh, that might help. You know, it's it's good. It's, it's always positive. That someone's trying something, and I think you can learn something from all these different things. Um, speaking of learning from things, let's go farmers. Some farmers in the U.S. and the U.K. are spontaneously switching to vegan farming in light of environmental pressures. Yeah, so this is like an interesting story, uh, mainly because a shout out to to the to the vegan listeners, the vocal vegan listeners here, um, <laughs> uh, which which is that it is rare you hear this from the other side. You actually don't often hear the concept of 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 taking of veganism on the farming side. You usually see it on the uh, on the individual side, and I think on the farming side, it actually is to me almost more. Um, it's it's a more powerful uh, in that it is in that it is it, the, the autonomy there for the for the indivi- for the for the farmers themselves is, is so obvious so that they get to make this call and they can move forward on it. I'm not entirely. I'm kind of curious what that means in some capacities. Like obviously, some of it is probably shifting away from actually selling meat or, or raising any of these cattle and stuff. Like yeah, that. well, they get rid of their goats and start planting. Yeah, yeah, vegetables. Yeah. Right, and the, and and, the, and and you know, and anything that reduces the amount of uh, cattle herds in 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 the in not just the United States and the world generally is good. We desperately need fewer cattle herds all over the country. Like that, that, so maybe this is a, you know, I, I'm not going to say this is going to change, uh, change everything, but I think it's at least like the EU plastic story. It's another like small step towards a slightly better world. Yeah. And if I'll just take this opportunity to clarify for our vegan listeners, what my position on that actually is, uh, I don't think people can be asked to make those types of changes. I think they automatically have a social uh, resistance. So uh, I think a lot of the time when people hear that, they think, "Oh, so you don't want to put any like you don't you don't think there should be any pressure to adopt more sustainable eating practices." Uh, no, no, you got me wrong. I'm actually more authoritarian than you. I don't think people can be left to make those decisions, and I think we have to force them. <laughs> so just to take that opportunity to be clear, I'm actually more extreme than you, not less. <laughs> I uh, recently saw a story about how they're uh, making cattle farming more sustainable by uh, developing uh, fly larvae, by uh, breeding fly larvae to in feed these them? big buckets. Yeah, I don't know. That's a it's quite the like, like, one like get a higher higher protein yield. Right. The, the the percentage of the percentage of food that is set that is made to then feed cattle is is terrifying. Mm. Uh, but uh, let's get let's get to one more story before we finish up. Polar bears. Yeah, let's do polar bears. So polar bears, a wonderful symbol of climate change, have begun migrating through Russian towns in large numbers due to loss of habitat. The small town of Belushia Guba has had 52 polar bears walking the streets, and fences are being erected around playgrounds, people are afraid to leave their homes, and some workers are being bused to work in military vehicles. So I'm on record on the show uh, as having a favorite Armageddon, uh, which is the jellyfish Armageddon. I would say that a united polar bear invasion uh, mm. is has got to be up there. Emaciated polar bears walking through your town. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Dave, that just means they're hungry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, you, you, an emaciated polar bear is as dangerous enough, not more than a than a, than a larger one. Um, and you know, I think that the polar bears might need to team up with something else. There's not enough polar bears, I think, to. Uh, you shouldn't think of it as an invasion, Stefan. It's a migratory species. They're fellow 
fellow um, organisms on this planet. But polar bears are they, incredibly dangerous. <laughs> like, they, like other bears are less dangerous than polar bears. Maybe they should build a wall. <laughs> <laughs> to keep all the... Honestly, the Northern Wall. This is a, That's a good Game of Thrones reference. The, the, the polar bears are coming, everyone. Uh, They're trying need, to get north, though. Right. Oh, well, there you go. Well, that's, that's okay. Now we're just trapping the polar not. bears into know. your All tents. I know is the ice is disappearing and they're... Savaging Russian towns. Right. Um, well, polar bears. Uh, polar bears are have long been. Uh, you know, I, I, I part of me wonders if you can actually track uh, climate change just by polar bears. So the first scene of polar bears is you know a healthy polar bear. Then you have the emaciated polar bear falling off ice, and then you have the polar bear in the in the town. And the last polar bear is a polar bear who's like living in New York City. And then that once you get to that, then you know that's the Armageddon. The polar mm-hmm. bear in New York City is the scene that's you know then then it's over for hurling jellyfish at the children. Exactly, that's what you would do. As somebody who plays a lot of video games, I find it very easy to imagine armored bears with weapons. So just <laughs> it's not that crazy to me personally. <laughs> All right, well there you go. Um, okay, well we're gonna come back. We had three longer stories about coal in the middle section. Uh, so we're actually gonna throw uh, to the music break um, in in a half a second. Um, um, and we're going to come back, actually, with we got coal from a German coal story, an EU coal story, and a U.S. coal story. Uh, so it's going to be all, we're going to be, you know, to steal a term from uh, from American right-wingers, we're going to be rolling coal all in the middle section. But first, we're going to listen to a music break from Saren. Saren, we'll listen to. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, alien listeners, podcast listeners, uh, and that three, those three people on three different radio stations right now who just randomly changed the channel and like, what the heck is this? Go- You're about to have your mind blown. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, all about, yes. I, I, I do imagine these few folks who are just driving down the train and be like, you know what I wish I could know about? A lot about how coal is impacting uh, um, the, the world. Or it's a actually lot of about, about how the coal. world is impacting coal. All right, well, let's switch it up on them. See, um, my mind is already blown. Mm. Uh, let's start. So Angela Merkel is expected to adopt a recommendation to close all of Germany's 84 coal plants by 2038 to meet its international carbon commitments. The decision was made after seven months of hard discussion between the 28 members of an appointed panel, which included federal and state government officials, industry and union reps, and scientists and environmentalists. Coal currently accounts for 40% of German electricity, with renewables at 41%. The plan will spend $45 billion in aid to coal-producing regions, since there are still 60,000 jobs directly or indirectly tied to coal in Germany. Those coal-producing states were disappointed that they didn't receive the $68 billion they were looking for, as they will face tough elections against the far-right Alternative for Germany party in the wake of the decision to kill the coal industry. The LA Times quotes German industry economics professor Claudia Kempfert as stating, quote, It's a big moment for climate policy in Germany that can make the country a leader once again in fighting climate change. It's also an important signal for the world that Germany is again getting serious about climate change. A very big industrial nation that depends so much on coal is switching it off. One poll suggested that a great majority of Germans are in favor of an even faster phase-out of coal by 2030. The 2038 deadline could still be moved forward three years, as recommended by the panel. Germany is already set to shut down its seven remaining nuclear facilities by 2022, which was decided after the Fukushima catastrophe eight years ago. This means that in just over 20 years, Germany will be relying on renewables for between 65 and 80 percent of its power. Germany will, however, still miss its 2020 target of CO2 reductions uh, of below of 40 percent below 1990 levels and will instead be around 32 percent below. The new decision could mean that Germany will have reduced its emissions by 55% below 1990 by 2030 and 80% by 2050. The panel also recommended that the highly contested final 250 acres of the 12,000-year-old Hambach forest should be protected. The forest is meant to be cleared for a coal mine, but activists have been camping out in the trees for years to prevent its destruction. 
Now the major German company RWE has agreed to stall its logging in the forest until the fall of next year. The company claims that preserving the forest will cost them tens of millions of euros. So, yeah, <laughs> Saren is doing the uh, is is playing the world's smallest violin for this coal company. He's crying me a river. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, well, first, I will say this is obviously great news. Um, it's an interesting follow up to a story we did cover actually. Uh, you know, now you know when they made the decision actually to. Uh, to shut down those, those nuclear facilities um, because it was one of those things of like environmentalists were getting a win and yet the inter- uh, yet the response or the solution to the win of getting nuclear facilities was was more coal um, and that was a you know a frustrating experience for those of us who who care deeply about climate change um, and so this is a a, 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 a great follow up to that in some in, in in many respects although. You know, we did still lose those extra years that could have been that could have much more easily sped to a, a decrease. You think they should have held on to the nuclear in order to get rid of the coal? I first? have a relatively, uh, yeah. I, I have I, my my stance is, is 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 that I would rather have nuclear than coal, which, I th- which I'm sure is that, which is like if there's if the vegans are the are the most likely to be verbal about it. The anti-nuclear establishment is second on the show, so I'm sure we'll we'll get message about that. But def- at this moment in time, if you currently, ha- I'd rather have a currently nuclear plant open uh, than than any new coal for sure. Uh, there's just not a question there, um, but but this is this is interesting. You know, this is a this is a huge step. Um, the you know something that's obviously happened in Ontario, uh, much different scenario in that we were mostly just had coal fired power plants. We didn't have a huge coal actual mining industry, mm. and so that's a different decision. Um, and and how starkly this is different from say from obviously the Trump decision, um, or even just you know even when you look at the the the, the Democrat uh, yeah, senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin. Um, who have decided that there's just no version of a life that should not have coal in it. Um, and, 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 you know, this is a huge investment. This is, you know, like when you talk about what a just transition looks like, we talk about a transition, a, a way to transition off, off, uh, off fossil fuels uh, towards another way of life. You have to put the money where your mouth is. And so to put $45 billion towards those 60,000 people is a pretty significant, very significant, really, um, investment. Um, and the 45 billion, um, Yes, exactly. For yeah. the coal communities. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 honestly, the other part of this is that like this should also inform you of how few people are actually employed uh, by these industries. The thing about these industries is that they're very localized, mm. and so very specific communities have very strong opinions. Twenty thousand directly for the coal industry, forty thousand indirectly. Yeah, exactly. And you know, and then look at you know, and then I think if you just like, and then you then you compare that to say, uh, you know, what how many how many actual you know that's. Like what's interesting is that forty percent of their energy can come from employing sixty thousand people. You know, Germany is a country of I th- of, of of I think it's eight eighty million people or something like that. So like this is a monumental small percentage of individuals employed while creating forty percent of the energy. Um, and and so you know from a jobs perspective. It's interesting here, right? Because the sixty thousand, like when you, when you look at retail or other things, and it's just like, like I would be, I would be, I, I can't do the math right now, but maybe I'll do it in a second as you talk about the second story. Uh, about you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there's another organization that you wouldn't even think of, like a you know, like a, a large supermarket who actually employs more people than the entire coal industry. And in, in, you know, the, we did this, we did this math when we were talking about Walmart or, or retail jobs in in the states, and and how much mm-hmm. Amazon was actually reducing work and jobs compared to. Uh, you know, compared to 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 what was who was making the coal mine. It's probably more satisfying to work in the energy industry, even if it's in coal, than uh, to uh, work in retail or something. I, I, well, I would argue that the coal miners themselves might uh, might would, would have a slightly different. Well, there's a difference between working in coal and mining coal. Yes, for sure. Yes, I would agree with that. Uh, but let's we only have three coal stories, so let's get on to the second one. Also, it pays better. Yes, that is true. The uh, Anglo-Swiss mining giant Glencore. Uh, which is one of the world's biggest coal champions, has been expanding, uh, had been expanding its coal operations by purchasing mines from companies who were dumping them, but has now decided to put a hard cap on its coal activity since its shareholders signed a climate initiative. The initiative, called Climate Action 100 Plus, is supported by 300 investors, managing $32 trillion in assets. The initiative has been influencing companies to disclose climate data and reduce emissions, and has in the past gotten Shell and BP to set emissions targets. 
coal still accounts for 25% of Glencore's income. So Glencore is a company I recently discovered um, in a conversation with a, with a friend of mine uh, whose history is incredibly dubious. Um, in fact, one of the major, major uh, knocks against the Clinton administration uh, was that his on his last day, he pardoned the founder of Glencore. Uh, Why did he pardon the founder of an Anglo-Swiss company? Uh, because he had been uh, he had been working uh, he had been basically violating sanctions uh, for quite some time against who? Uh, it, I believe I believe it was Iran uh, mm. and, and and others. It was it, like Glencore is a, is a whole thing, but uh, but Saren's got some data. Ooh, no, I do. You saw me you saw me furiously typing. Yes. I have some interesting data for you. So these are uh, both of these numbers are coming directly. This is not exactly what you're asking for, but I think it will help put uh, some some specificity on what you were just saying. So according to Stats Canada, which I'm going to go ahead and trust, uh, in the 2017, which was the most recently recorded year, Canada in all types, so salaried employees and hourly employees, employed just under 200,000 people, all of Canada in the oil industry. Walmart Canada, so only for Canada, employs 91,000. So we talk about the oil industry as being like the linchpin of the Canadian economy. Uh, well, apparently half the size of that is Walmart, and I've literally never heard anyone mention Walmart in Canada. Well, and and and, and, and to to sort of to extend that to a to a conversation about the same type of people who are arguing that uh, you know that 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 you cannot reduce these types of coal jobs are the same ones that are cheering when you see a thousand people laid off in the news media. You know, and 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 news media is certainly uh, you know a decently paying job in comparison. And so there's there's the level of which I think I think a big part of this is the fact that these are localized in these conversations. Who cheers when the news media gets laid off? Uh, the conservatives who hate quote unquote fake news. You know, the, the BuzzFeed and these other organizations that, that Trump literally tweeted about it, mm. <laughs> saying like, ha ha, they are bad. You know, like this has been the conservative news media is very much pro the destruction of news. I mean, it's a shame to lose dignified jobs in any sector. Well, exactly. And I think that's why the importance is to invest in actually retraining. Um, and and so uh, and, and then, of course, so to slightly switch to this sort of this sort of larger, larger. So piece. the Glencore thing with Bill Clinton. Yeah. Well, that, like it just it is it is like it is terrifying. It is it's, it's it's Glencore itself is a is a company that you should just like do some research on. It, it's it is under a series of its uh, sanctions recently for some of its actions in in uh, in in other places. Um, and so the fact that it is you know it's another example I think of these of these mining companies that you know that bring in all these assets in you know into into Swiss bank accounts or into Canadian bank accounts. Obviously Toronto is the mining capital of the world, and then. And, and but at the deep, deep expense of these of other places where they actually operate, um, and so it's very much when we think about. I think we so often think about development, quote unquote, uh, as as rich countries sending money, place, uh, sending uh, sending money to to less developed nations. Um, but the amount of which these less developed nations are subsidizing uh, the rich countries through play, through countries th through things like mining and resource extraction um, is at least equal, if not to the other way. You know, the, the the wealth is not coming. Like whenever you hear someone complaining about the idea that 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 we're spending too much money on. Um, on helping these people, uh, or, or or sending money on in 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 aid in some of some fashion, understand that more money is coming back our way through these sort of extraction and resource extraction type moves. Mm. Uh, so it's like it's a it's a whole thing. Um, but uh, let's I want to make sure we get to all three stories. So let's let's get to U.S. coal. So a 49-year-old coal plant in Kentucky, USA, is being closed in spite of a tweet from Donald Trump that tried to sway the Tennessee Valley Authority's decision. The authority has generally been moving away from coal in recent years in favor of natural gas and renewables, since keeping old coal plants running has become too expensive. Murray Energy Corporation, led by Trump supporter Robert E. Murray, which supplies the doomed plant with its coal, has tried to convince authorities to keep the place open. Mary Ann Hitt of the Sierra Club said, quote, Once again, Trump's cynical efforts to bail out millionaire coal executives have been overcome by the reality that coal plants can no longer compete with cleaner, cheaper energy sources. NPR reports, quote, Last year, Trump ordered Energy Secretary Rick Perry to take steps in to help struggling coal and nuclear power plants, which have trouble competing against cheaper natural gas and renewable energy. No such plan has been carried out so far. Meanwhile, coal plants have continued to close dur during Trump's time in office, and coal consumption in the U.S. has hit its lowest point in nearly four decades. 
Yeah. Um, so, and this is this is this is a thing that that gets that sort of wraps this whole cool story, I think, in a uh, in a little bow, which is that the the argument for so many years was how was in the in the sort of the the implication for so many years uh, was that we couldn't afford to be carbon to be you know carbon neutral or to to, to have renewables or low carbon options uh, because it was too expensive and so and and that the greenies were trying to make us spend more money for energy and how dare they uh, and now that you get to a point in which the the cost per watt is actually cheaper for many renewables uh, than coal, and it has and and natural gas as well. Uh, now, natural gas is still a, a fossil fuel, and so it's not perfect, but is at least as a replacement for coal is decreasing the is certainly decreasing some uh, carbon. But like now that we get this far, suddenly it becomes an economic issue of trying to uh, of trying to help these people, right? It, it switches for some reason, and the reason, as spoiler alert, is because the political system is captured by the fossil fuel industry. Um, but the but for some reason, you're seeing this 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 experience of uh, renewables are too expensive. And so we can't use them. Um, oh wait, renewables are cheaper. Oh no, now now we have to care about the jobs that that that, that would be created that, that we'd be losing. You know, it's as it's as if the jobs that are created by renewable energy are somehow worse jobs uh, than mining coal. Um, you know, and you know, and, and there's and there's a huge movement around trying to do job reskills and job training here, um, and and yet. At this point, the actual, you know, the numbers make it quite clear that if for economic reasons and for environmental reasons, renewables make more sense. And so we just have to invest in building this infrastructure. And and what it, the problem with that is that the infrastructure exists not only as actual physical infrastructure for these for these, you know, for these long, you know, these hard path energy systems, these long, these long transmission lines and these centralized sources of energy. It also exists within the political system. You know, it also exists within the people who have the money. You know, the the fact that a coal baron has has Trump's ear enough to try to get one coal plant saved in Kentucky that's fifty years old should say something, right? The fact that these people, these energy barons, are are so close to the to the president that they can get these kind of actions, um, even when they and they still fail because the economics aren't there. You know, and it's that. It's 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 this thing of like there's so many more options. How about someone's jumping? No, I was just I was we're basically out of we're nearly out of time, so I just wanted to make a joke. Well, we were we're learning in the last 24 hours that Trump may have tried to may may be in the process of trying to st- uh, sell illegal nuclear secrets to Saudi Arabia. Maybe he's just trying to help them get off oil. Oh yeah, that's, that's exactly yeah. That's definitely <laughs> the plan. Um, and uh, and. This is yeah that sort of speaks to a larger sort of uh, larger sort of issue. But like, you know, I, I guess if I had to sort of wrap this up, it's to me that you know the coal industry has been dying for years, um, and and it is why actually. So I can I, I have a slight I have a slight that we have been wanting to do a show or sort of a deep dive into the Green New Deal. Uh, for a while now, uh, and we we plan to in the future. Uh, and but one part of this that is important, and I think to, I think to highlight, is that um, when people look at sort of the the protests you see in France against Macron uh, for trying to raise the price of of, of gasoline there um, as part of his sort of his agenda towards environmental uh, quote unquote you know reducing carbon, it. Someone has a. I was reading this back and forth on Twitter, and sort of people see that as a as a as a failure of of green technology or of green of green movements or of green plans. And then someone else had a had a, had sort of the counter argument, which I thought was quite interesting, which was that what it shows is actually the failure of a of of of, of trying to merge the neoliberal idea of of envi- uh, neoliberalism with environmentalism. That the that to try to simply say that say a carbon tax is the only thing you need. Um, or, or, or that raising prices on these on these types of goods is the only thing that you need to actually reduce consumption um, is only half of the story, you know. Because you know, as we say in San Francisco times last week, my thing is that everything should cost more. Everything can only cost more if you are then also providing the people who are the most harmed the resources to afford these new prices. And so the point was that Macron, the lesson from Macron shouldn't be that environmental policies are unpopular. It should be that environmental Environmental policies that do not also protect the most vulnerable will fail. 
Um, and so, and so I think that things like, things like when you look at how sticky this whole issue of trying to get, get off coal is, um, I think that's the takeaway here is that you have to be protecting the people who be losing the jobs. You have to be providing job retraining. You have to create a larger scaled response. And, and, and I think that is the thing that we should take away from this. Hmm. Uh, but uh, let's uh, we, we're now right on 1140 and so it's time for our next music break uh, but we don't know what it is what's it going to be And we're back here on the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our wonderful radio syndicates across the country. And again, uh, or maybe on our podcast at thegreenmajority.ca, where you can find all of the links to these stories uh, and previous episodes and ways to take us with you if you, uh, you know, if you aren't listening on the radio and you want to have it on your phone or on your computer. So many ways to listen to the show. Thank you for all listening. And we've now got four news stories, kind of quick hits here, starting with, a, with you know, we're, we had energy theme in the middle section, so we're carrying on a bit of energy theme uh, just for this first story. Dave, what we got? The Swansea uh, Tidal Lagoon Project, which will generate renewable tidal energy electricity off the coast of Wales, might be able to go ahead now without any government subsidies, since investment might be coming in through power purchasing agreements from several major companies. The agreements can uh, the, those power purchasing agreements can protect a company against future electricity prices or boost its market value by giving it a greener image. Yeah, so this is a, a story that I highlighted just quickly because of the fact that all like, that these types of these types of power um, agreements are almost entire almost always done with subsidies. Um, even even sort of more traditional types of power is are done by subsidies, and basically the government thought that this was not going to be worth it, and so they were sort of like, we're we're not going to invest, and yet the company was still able to go find out actual individual places to sell this energy to, um, and so it speaks, I think, a to the fact that that the the, the the people of this of this particular plan really do believe in this technology and believe they can they can hit their, their targets but also that that they're believed by these other industry professionals um, and so I think anytime that the that the, the larger industry uh, sort of begins to sort of you know, get ahead even of of government in regards to accepting new types of technology is a pretty good indication that you know that that we are we could be going a lot faster if if government sort of started helping out you know it's hard to not think of the amount of subsidies we're constantly giving fossil fuel industry or or or, or oil in different ways um when when these types of new energy systems are sort of just being are being left off well as we saw with the uh, sustainable fisheries a couple of weeks ago in uh, Indonesia uh, the market value of uh, of sustainability is increasing yes yeah, exactly. Well, and, and, and you know, especially as you see, uh, especially in the in the EU and that in sort of Europe generally, the the number of things that are shifting, you, it's it's a relatively good assumption, I would say, that you that if you want to carry on working there, you should start thinking about the fact that you would need to get to low carbon or zero carbon options. You know, there are a lot of different things move in that direction, and once that hits worldwide, uh, you'll see quite the shift in, in in the values of companies and things like that. And so, the sooner I think some of these companies can get off get off fossil fuels, I think they're they're seeing the market value of that both already and then you know since so much of market value is also predicting is getting in early. You know, before they take off, mm. that's investing in this kind of technology early on is a, is a huge part of it. In this uh, particular decision, it was a decision the government was making between investing, I believe it was in a natural gas project and this uh, title. Yes, exactly. Power. Yeah, uh, they decided it was more cost effective for the natural gas. Right, uh, and natural gas is, and that's one of the reasons why natural gas is sort of these this weird. Um, I, I want to say it's 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 a it's a tough spot uh, as an environmentalist to feel about um, because of the fact that it is so consistently in one side um, relegated. Uh, it so consistently is a lower carbon option than than coal and some of the other things, but is still a fossil fuel. And so should have you know had we started this revolution twenty years ago, it would we'd be in a much better place now. But to keep investing in it now sort of feels short-sighted, even in the way that we haven't got off the other places. But I'll, I'll hold that rant to later. Uh, let's move on to these schools. What about the U.S. military? Oh, let's do military first. Okay. So this is a, a slightly old story now, and it's also boring. <laughs> a uh, report from the U.S. military states that climate change is uh, putting 79 U.S. military facilities at risk worldwide. 
The report states, quote, the effects of a changing climate are a national security issue with potential impacts to Department of Defense missions, operational plans, and installations. Most of the affected facilities are vulnerable to floods from sea level rise and tropical storms. Some of them are preparing to protect themselves from thawing permafrost. Some congressional Democrats were unimpressed with the report, with Adam Smith stating, quote, The Department of Defense presented no specifics on what is required to ensure operational viability and mission resiliency, and failed to estimate the future costs associated with ensuring these installations remain viable. That information was required by law. The Department of Defense must develop concrete, executable plans to address the national security threats presented by climate change. So my my thought on this is is, is something I've, I've briefly mentioned previously um, in regards to I do think at some point the, the like the United States military complex is something that is deeply rooted and and hard to manage um, in many ways and the amount of money that is continually flowing into into the U.S. military is is unbelievable um, and so. I, I have this weird two-sided of 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 no of feeling like that should be reduced, and then also sort of seeing the opportunities feels like the wrong word, but the but it also feels like the right word. So I'm going to use it um, to invest in. Like, if you put the United States military in charge of mitigation strategies, um, and or if you or if you you sort of use the sort of the National Guard mechanic um, or these other types of organizations, or or honestly, if you just in totally changed how you know, if you sort of turn the U.S. military's attention um, to uh, to to protect against all threats, um, I think you could you you have a huge force and ability who understands climate change. The Pentagon understands climate change perhaps better than maybe anyone. Um, uh, they've, you know, they've been releasing reports and reports and reports on it. They understand the value. The thing. The problem is their their mindset remains, you know, still militaristic because they are the military. Um, but I, I do think that there is a, a a huge force of people that that you could act that could be mobilized to act to build, uh, you know, mitigation strategies to to plan to to rebuild infrastructure to to actually work on these things. And there's huge issues about deploy, deploying military, um, you know, internally in your country. But as we cont- as the states continues to not fund uh, disaster relief efforts um, or or to fail on that front. Eventually, the answer I think they're going to come to, unless they switch course dramatically, is that they're going to start using the military more and more often to respond to these threats. Well, if we need the moral equivalent of a war to stop climate change, yeah, let's then, use the moral equivalent of an army. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and I think that is the – and so I think there's there's obviously many, many problems with this. And the idea of stationing a bunch of military personnel within the country is, is a – dubious task. Well, they're uh, also trained to assault human beings. Well, exactly. Yes, exactly. There's many other problems with this plan. Um, but it just strikes me as one of those things that it feels like how intractable the ability to cut fund military funding feels like and, and how much the U.S. military does actually understand the threat of climate change. I, I kind of feel like eventually those two things will come to a head and you will see the U.S. military feeling like it needs to take a larger step in actually pre- either at least mitigating climate change. I think preventing climate change is probably less not just protecting its own bases and missions, you mean? Well, exactly, yeah, but but responding to responding to you know, especially in disaster relief. I think disaster relief is one of the places where you almost will certainly see you know an increase of uh, at least the National Guard. Uh, who and yet are, we have disaster relief funding being moved to border walls. Well, exactly, yeah. Sorry, Sarah wants to jump in. Uh, is, I know this is what you meant, but just to emphasize for the listeners, stopping climate change does resolve and propose uh, uh, time uh, travel technology. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the only answer. Um, but th- yeah, but so this is the this is the thing, right? Um, it's a it is as we carry forward this question of of what you know as we every year we do less or every year we don't do enough to do things the job gets harder and harder and harder and i think the the likelihood that you're going to see even more drastic responses uh increases um and so the so what i'm saying really is we should do something very very quickly so we don't have to re- rely on any of these other more drastic ideas but i do sort of see a likely convergence of these ideas uh but let's move on so um schools new research appears to show that students Students in schools near major roads tend to do worse on tests and to play more hooky. Academic achievement has been proven to be notably lower at schools downwind of highways versus schools upwind. 
The study followed students who were transitioning between schools and found that those who went from upwind schools to downwind schools had lower grades, more behavior problems, and more absences. Well, that's that's actually that's an interesting uh, interesting little quick study. I, I, obviously, the the first thing there is, you know, how much impact is exhaust fumes in, in these type of things having? Uh, but I'd also sort of I would also for that I think this is probably likely another example of a, of the sort of more insidious and less obvious ways that environmental racism comes into play. You know that that these that the schools that are downwind, uh, you know, from from these major highways or schools honestly that are close to highways at all. You know, the idea that you're building a school close enough to a highway. I don't know. There are just so many highways. Well, yeah, in the, the, in the United States. Well, exactly. Yeah, um, but but I do think that the fact that the, that it is not surprising that um, I, like I'm curious to know what the socioeconomic if if you started if you started controlling for socioeconomics within this question, um, how much that would also interplay. I mean, but it's such a subtle issue that can you really imagine a school um, like being downwind of a highway and that being really obvious to the people there saying, oh, we need to put you know, less advantaged people here because it sucks. Well, no, no. I would say that the more likely thing is that when they're deciding where the highway goes, uh, they would put the highway through low. But downwind versus upwind? Well, downwind versus upwind is a little bit different. But I think that even if it's close enough to be considered that, right? Like the idea that you're even close enough to a highway at all, I think speaks a little bit to the type of area you're in. Um, yeah, but- I think it's, I think a lot of it has to do with like suburbia, right? Which is that there's... it. In those types of sprawls, as sort of David is implying, there's sort of highways everywhere. Yes. Um, if you are... Of an upper, I, so I think the 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 axis there is that if you were in a situation where it didn't feel healthy and you have resources, you could go somewhere else. You might send your kids to private school, whereas those other people don't have that choice. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think there's. I truly, I'm not trying to say that there's almost that there's no example of also the fact that like clearly, I think there's an example here of also the the fact that emissions and in car emissions uh, do affect. Uh, your ability to think and live and, and exist, um, but I, I, I think there's sort of a couple different things at play here, which is not something that anybody thinks about in this country. Oh no, no, like the, the, the amount of which we're just constantly walking, you know, walking around, you know, the amount of cars we're always around all the time, or the amount of which you know any cyclist has to be dealing with an exhaust pipe every time they stop at a road is 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 abhorrent. Um, but we do. I do want to get. We're running out of time, so I do want to get to this last story. So let's get this last story, and then we'll uh, can chat that out. 16-year-old climate activist Greta Thunberg's Fridays for Future movement, which organizes high school walkouts in support of climate action, is growing steadily, with huge protests in the UK, Australia, Belgium, Germany, the US, Japan, and many other countries. Thunberg stated, quote, I think enough people have realized just how absurd the situation is. We're in the middle of the biggest crisis in human history, and basically nothing is being done to prevent it. I think what we are seeing is the beginning of great changes, and that is very hopeful. Bill McKibben said, quote, The movement that Greta launched is one of the most hopeful things in my 30 years of working on the climate question. It throws the generational challenge of global warming into its sharpest relief and challenges adults to prove that they are actually adults. So many thanks to all the young people who are stepping up. Some politicians have spoken publicly against the strikes, with an Australian minister claiming that protesting only teaches young people how to receive welfare. A Belgian minister said the children were being led by shadowy powers, but was swiftly contradicted by intelligence chiefs. The Guardian reports that for the past few Fridays, there have been tens of thousands of students striking worldwide in between 30 and 50 cities. A strike planned for March 15th is expected to reach 150 cities globally. Yeah, and this is something that's, this is, I think this movement is 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 interesting in, the, in its power, um, in that there, it, it is... In the same way that I, th- that I think that the conversation about whether uh, of the of the millennial generation is having about uh, whether or not uh, to have children, um, I, th- I think which I think is a, a, comes as a surprise to to the older generations. Um, I think this is a is the next example of that, which is these are people who are truly aware that they are going to experience the worst of climate change, and and they are being t- totally ignored. Um, and, and the response they are getting is just, you know, talk about paternalistic, you know, the responses of you should be in school, uh, or, 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 you know, or that, that this, that this is somehow not as important as anything. It's like, what is like, like, I think it, it comes from the same place of just complete negligence on the understanding of the scale of what's happening. 
and, and that and that I, and that I if I if I was going to recommend that if the, the grumpy people who want these 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 courageous teens to go back to school if they want them to do that there's an, they're telling you how <laughs> they will go back to school once you start doing something about climate change yeah. you know like they've given you the action uh, so it's just the question of will you take that action or not. It's also a matter of like even if you're dealing like even if you're dealing with much smaller children, right? Because the the there's a lot of condescension in that, right? So when they're like, oh, those stu- what could they possibly know? They're just high school students, right? So when they're saying that, they're not they're not making they don't think they have to make any attempt to even listen to what they're saying because they can just dismiss it out of hand. What would they know? They're high school students. So, but like even if you're dealing with like an in like a, t- a three year old who wants a cookie, <laughs> right? You have to like at least pretend to hear them out. And what you like realize is that these kids actually have a lot more information about these topics than you do. And all you're doing by not even pretending to listen, like even if you don't really think they have anything to say, if you show them that you're not even going to listen, you're actually like even the best, most well, like mature child on the planet is not going to like that. Like you're, you're, it's escalation. Well, right. And, and when are people going to learn it? Like whether or not it's legitimate, this has nothing to do with climate change. It just has everything to do with youth. But, Stop trying to think that if you condescend to them, they're going to do what you want. Right. Um, but, but then, but then further, like I, there's, there's this question of, and this is my last comment. Cause we'll, then we'll, then we'll just run out of time in the show. But further to that, I think there's this element of, you know, where do you think the 16 year old climate activist learned about climate change? School. <laughs> that this is like this is what happens in science class. You know, like the chance that this kid, like these children, have now gone through what would be a science course about climate change. They have now sat in a room in school for hours, for now months. Uh, you know, like researching and learning about climate change. No, like the chance that you don't realize how less you learn once you leave school, and the idea that they are going into class day after day to learn about this problem that is a scientifically proven existing, and then when they react very rationally to the problem, they're told to go back to the place they learned about it because that's where they should be better served. Like this doesn't work. The only answer is to solve climate change, and so kudos to all of these youth who are striking and the continued work on it. I think it's one of the more powerful moves you can see. And the next one, again, is planned for March 15th across the world. Uh, so with all of that, thanks so much, and we'll throw the end. Yeah, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, stay tuned. Good, uh, have a good green week, and we'll have all the information at greenmajority.ca. Take care.